0: Well, a very good morning to all of you. We're thrilled that you're here with us today. Uh, Like Chad said, if you are new here today or joining us for the first time in a very long time, you might be asking yourself, what's with the T-shirts? What's with the banners? What's going on around here? We are in week two of a five-week series called Take Root, which is one of the most enormously significant initiatives that we have ever journeyed on in the life of this church. Our goals are to extend the blessings of God over the years to come to tens of thousands of people. And we also want to grow this facility. We have a great... um, project ahead of us. You can get the specs on it out in the commons area, but many of you know that on many weeks there is not a seat in this room. Some of you come in sort of shaky from the parking lot because you know there is often not a spot in the parking lot, and so we have a major uh, building initiative that is going to hopefully take care of a lot of that and more. And on top of all of that, more than anything else, what we want to do is root ourselves deeply In Christ. Dan Meyer, a senior pastor, said last week, he said, You know, if somebody walked up to us today and wrote a check for the full amount of this initiative, we would still have these conversations. We would still preach these sermons. We would still go on this adventure together because it's about so much more than bricks and mortar and trying to figure out what to do with our facility. It's about the life and the extension of God's love beyond this place throughout the world and also just in our own lives. And so that's what the Take Root initiative is and As has been mentioned, there's tons of information about it in the commons area after worship. If you need to catch up on what we've been talking about, you can always download the sermons online if you miss them. And if you showed up here today without your Take Root guidebook or you're new here, raise your hand if you need one. I left mine at home, so I am a great example of what not to do. Uh, Hopefully we caught most of you on the way in, but if you think you need one of those, raise your hand because we are going to start our time today on page 34. So go ahead and flip that those open if you have them. are studying together the life of Sarah and Abraham. And there are few places in scripture where the story of trust and entrusting in God's provisions for our lives comes through more clearly than in the story of Sarah and Abraham. They present a staggering picture of God's ability to bless ordinary people. I find myself at times looking at the blessings that God seems to bring through others and the way God uses others for his kingdom purposes. And I find myself going, well, of course God is going to use that person because they're super talented in that way. Maybe they're a great musician or something like that. Or of course God's going to use those people. Look at the family they come from. Look at the resources they have. Look at the talent that seems to be oozing out of them. But the reality is, you don't have to be extraordinary for God to do something with you. Abraham and Sarah are the perfect example of this. If anything, they were very, very messed up people. Abraham started out his journey with God in a terrible way. He was a lousy husband. He was a lousy father. He was horrible at developing and helping and encouraging and empowering his community. And any of us who have ever approached Scripture and maybe thought to ourselves that the Bible is filled with you know, cute little anecdotes and stories of perfect people will know right away that that's not true when we get to the story of Abraham. Abraham. You know, there's that sort of gut reaction to approach Scripture that way. Maybe Christians sometimes in our culture make it look like this is all about perfect people and judgment. But the reality is when you actually read the stories of God in Scripture, you will find that God did tremendous things through very broken, very messed up, very confused, very doubt-filled people. And Abraham and Sarah are the poster children for that. In Genesis 12 for example, God leads Abraham from the comforts of his home Ur, and he leads Abraham all the way down to Egypt. And before he goes, he tells Abraham, he goes, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. Trust me. And Abraham gets to Egypt, and he's in a foreign land, and he's got a stunning, gorgeous wife, scripture tells us. And he realizes when he gets down to Egypt that this might not go well for him that it would be very easy for the Egyptians to kidnap his wife, enslave his wife, and kill him off because he was the husband. And so instead of trusting in God and believing that God was going to take care of him in that situation and take care of her, he says to her very quickly, hey, pretend you're my sister. Can you imagine the panic and betrayal she might have felt in that moment? And he carries on the charade for a while because he does not trust that God is going to take care of them. And then in Genesis 16, Sarah, she betrays God's trust. God has said to Abraham and Sarah, Look, I'm going to move you from your home. I'm going to lead you to a place you don't know. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to have people, nations that come from you. I'm going to make you parents. I promise you I will. Nation after nation after nation will trace themselves back to you. All the major world religions today trace themselves back. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, they all trace themselves back to the Abraham story. This is what God said he was going to do, and they didn't believe it. And in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah get impatient. And Sarah says to Abraham, look, this parent thing is taking a lot longer than I thought it would. Since I can't have children, why don't you go sleep with my slave, and we're going to figure it out that way. And Abraham does. And those are not the children that God meant for them to have. And years later, God says, I told you I was going to do this. I told you I was going to do this. He revisits the conversation. And Abraham and Sarah, we're told in Scripture, fall flat on their faces laughing at God. Abraham basically says, are you a joke? Do you see how old I am? Do you see how old my wife is? You keep saying that, God. When is the promise going to happen? When? Can I trust you? It is hard to trust God. It's the first principle of our conversation this morning. It is hard to trust God. There are things that God wants to do in your life and in my life. And it is hard to trust that God is going to do the things he says he will do for us. And I'm not talking about making us fat and happy I'm not even talking about him having the Cubs win or something like that. This is not what we ask for from God. God does not promise to give us what we want. God promises to grow us and root us deeply in him and to do his kingdom purposes through us, which means he is going to make us people of peace, people of charity, people of justice, people of wisdom, people who are sought after when things go wrong in this world, who can provide a place of prayer and a place of presence for others. That's what God's going to do. He's going to use all of us for the sake of others if we would just trust. But it is so hard to trust God. And if you find yourself sitting here going, yeah, right, you are in good company. Because Scripture is filled with doubters and people who have shaken their fists at heaven and who have laughed outright at God, who have denied that God will actually ever use them, who have wondered and ached and agonized, and that is the company that we find ourselves in when we dare to say we have to learn to trust God. And here's what happens. The second principle is that God grows us By testing our trust, we grow trust by being tested and being told we can actually handle the things that God is going to bring to us. God grows us by testing our trust, which is to say he deliberately presents us with tasks, with challenges. He may actually take his hands and say, you're going to survive this thing that you're working on and I'm going to be more known to you because of it. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like the idea that God might allow my life to be stressful or chaotic or unsettled because I have to figure out how to love him more. I don't like that. And as parents, many of us might know that you have to help your kids by stressing them out a little bit and testing them so that you can trust them, right? My 10-year-old once, we had a conversation about going over to one of the neighbor's houses, and he was going to walk there for his very first time. And we went over it and over it and over it, right and then right again. Take a right and then right again. And as a parent, you know, you got to let him go a little bit. And he left, and 10 minutes later, he came home sweating out of breath. I said, buddy. He goes, mom, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. We'd been to this house over and over and over again, and he couldn't find it on his own. And we went through it again. And you know what? He's never been able to not find it now. He knows his way there now. The stress, the test, the working. This is how we grow. This is how we learn the way through the life that God has for us. God will test us. We will challenges. And it's not just because God likes to have fun and mess with us. He's not up in heaven with some sort of giant switchboard just pushing calamity here and calamity there to see how we respond. God will test us to see how faithful we are and to see if we can grow strong enough to do the work that he has laid out before us to do, to be the people in this world, who can bring the love and the mercy and the wisdom of God to those who need it. Faith is an active word. It's not a passive thing we receive. It's like a muscle, and you have to work it those of you who know anything about biology will know that you know, when the muscles grow, when our muscles strengthen, it's because they actually tear a tiny little bit, and then when they come back together, that's how they become stronger. I wake up to the best of my ability some mornings at 5.15, and I go to some crazy boot camp class, and I line myself up with 30 other people doing push-ups at 5.30, and we're all thinking, we don't have to be here doing this. We don't have to put ourselves through this. And the thing everybody's looking for the next day is to get to talk about how sore they are because they were so good and did this workout. And that muscle soreness, that's proof that you're getting stronger. That's proof that you were stressed, that your body is growing stronger. And that is the muscle of faith. J.D. Greer says this. He says, God leads you through the valleys of the shadow, to show you that he can provide for you there. He lets you endure storms so you can discover that you are always okay with him in the boat, even if he appears to be sleeping. And he allows you to experience conflict so that he can show you his ability to provide a table for you in the presence of your enemies. To switch metaphors a bit, faith is the act of rooting ourselves deeply in God when the winds of life are blowing hard. This past week, our friend George was in a small group with us and told us this story that I thought fit so brilliantly with the conversation we're having today. The University of Arizona has a project. It's a biosphere. They've built a huge enclosed version of planet Earth. There are seven ecosystems in it, and there are tourists and researchers and students and scientists who come to the biosphere to figure out everything from better farming practices to what maybe the tundra could be like. And it's sort of this perfect planet Earth. The air is a little bit cleaner, the soil is not damaged, and so the trees there grow very, very fast. And researchers and scientists have been astounded by how quickly The trees grow to full maturity. But once that happens, something that confounded them was that the trees, once they reached full maturity, would just fall over or collapse. That they couldn't stay up. They would grow to a certain size, and then they would collapse. And they would scratch their heads and try to figure this out and test the soil and test the air and try to figure it out. And finally, one of them had an aha moment when they were standing outside under a real tree in the real world, and they looked up and they heard the rustling of the wind through the leaves. There's no wind in the biosphere. And that triggered a whole series of research that said trees actually grow in strength because they face the wind. And it is the pressure of the wind blowing on at them that makes them strong. They call this stress wood. It is the reason you can look at a tree that seems to just contort and twist itself and almost defy gravity to just get a little bit of sunlight coming through a crowded canopy in a forest. They grow because of stress, because they have challenged themselves in this natural way. And that is how it is with us. We grow when we face stress. None of you need more stress in your life. I know I surely don't. And the last thing I want when I wake up in the morning is to say to God, hey, stress me out today. Let's see how that goes. But I'm talking about the stress that comes when we make decisions based on following God. The sort of stress that comes when we say, I'm going to go befriend that person, even though I'm nothing like them, and I don't want to have anything to do with them, But the Bible tells me we're connected, and so I want to figure them out. And the stress comes when we pray for our enemies, or when we turn the volume down on this culture that is at each other's throats every day in our media, and we say, Enough, I'm gonna have civil discourse. I'm gonna actually have a real conversation with the people who think differently from me, and I'm gonna try to bless them. Like these are the stresses that bring us to a place where we are rooted more deeply in God's kingdom purposes for this world. The reason that we can trust that and the reason that we can endure the stress is because we can trust God, because of his commitment to us. God is committed to our success. He is not pushing Ideas and biblical principles and conversations about generosity and justice on us because he just wants to see how it all works out. He's doing it because he's committed to being with us in it. We can trust God because of his commitment to us. In Genesis 15, we find Abram doubting again. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And God effectively says to him again, trust Me. And then he says, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can even count them. And this is not the we live really close to a major city, I can see three stars kind of sky. This is the ancient world without these giant glowing globes of cities where you could see stars scattered from horizon to horizon when the dark of night and the thickness of night meant something to people. And God says at that moment to Abraham, look up, you can't even count the stars in the sky. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then scripture says, Abram believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. What does that mean, credited it to him as righteousness? And as pastors, we get asked sometimes, hey, we live in the New Testament time, and we have Jesus, and so that's why we're saved. But what about all those folks in the Old Testaments? How do they get, how do they get saved? How do they find their way to God? And we have the beauty of hindsight, and we have the story of Jesus, and we look back to the saving work of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, they look forward to the promises of God. Abram is proving his faithfulness. It says, Abram believed. He believed God in that moment. And God said to him, I'm giving you credit for that. You have done a righteous thing. You have trusted in my promises through the stress and through the turmoil you have been through. You have trusted and I have credited that to you as righteousness. God also said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And again, Abram struggles to trust. So he asks, Sovereign Lord, how can I know if I will gain possession of it? I mean, he has been given a territory that is occupied. This is not an easy concept to wrap your brain around for him, let alone us in our contemporary ears whose land may be a quarter acre in the suburbs. What what does this mean? What does Abraham have to learn how to do? He has to trust that God is going to provide for him exactly what he said. And because of Abram's wondering and his wrestling with it, God makes a covenant at this time in the story with Abraham. And it seems really odd to our contemporary ears, but I'm going to walk you through what this covenant was. The way you made a covenant in the ancient world at this time, and it didn't even have to be just a Bible covenant. This was just the way covenants were done. They would take animals and sacrifice them by cutting them in half. And they would make an aisle, and they would put half of the animals on one side of the aisle and half of the animals on the other. And then the two parties entering into agreement together would walk together down this aisle, basically saying, Woe to me, Death be upon me, sacrifice be upon me, if I don't keep up my end of this covenant. Which made me very glad we live in an era of email and paper. We can do our legal deals that way. The word covenant, the root, is to cut. This is where that word comes from. Covenants, historically, at this time, were made at sundown. And so we're told in Genesis 15, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And Abram has a dream. And the dream, again, sounds super odd to us. He sees a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch moving down the covenantal aisle. And if you don't know the scriptures as well as Abram would have, which is me, I didn't know this that well the pot and the torch are both symbols for God. They were both symbols of the Sinai story, the Mount Sinai story of Moses. They were symbols of God. But where's Abram in the dream? Because God, two images for God are walking down the middle of the covenant, but there's, there's no Abram. It's God and God walking down. And the vision gets even more amazing when you consider the fact that in the ancient world, the king would be the one requesting the covenants, but would never actually walk down the aisle himself because it was bloody and it was messy and their robes used to drag through all the muck as they would make a covenant. And so the king would send a servant to do it. And this scripture story is the only story in the ancient Near East where the king himself actually gets himself all bloodied and dirty and makes the covenant. And the king in this story is saying, if I don't keep up my end of the promise... I'll pay the price. And if you don't keep up your end of the promise, I'll pay that price too. Sound familiar? This is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you. Those are the words we come to the communion table with when we break bread together. This is the covenant that God is entering into with Abram. I've got you. Trust me. In whatever comes your way because I have got you. God then will use us if we trust him. If we believe in that covenantal promise, if we believe that he's willing to go through the muck for us, if we trust him in whatever we are facing, the last idea I want to share with you this morning is that God will use us. He will use us if we trust him. And he will use us not just for our own good, not just so we can feel really good about doing something great for God. If we trust God and all that happens is our own little individual insular life gets better, then we've missed the whole thing. The whole point in trusting God is because it makes us better for the sake of others. It makes us better husbands and wives and children and friends and coworkers and colleagues and students. It changes the way we see one another. It helps us reach out to people that we might normally walk right past. It reminds us to pray for those who love us and pray for those who persecute us too. It reminds us to be generous with our resources and generous with our lives. That's the point of trusting God. So that we can be used for goodness and mercy and generosity and justice in this world. So here's the last interesting bit of this story. After they go through this covenantal time, and after Abraham and Sarah have shown throughout enough of their lives that they indeed, despite all their flaws, despite all their shortcomings, can actually trust God because they did, God changes their names. They go from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. In Hebrew, their names change by just one letter. Just one letter, the letter H. The Hebrew word for breath and spirit is this same letter, H, it's a symbol. God, when he created Humanity. we're told he breathed life into them. He breathed his ruah, his spirit into them. That's the same symbol, that's the same letter used here added to their names, which is to say they now have the spirit of God in them. They have proven their trust well enough that God now infuses his spirit in them. So what they set about to do, they set about to do on behalf of God and for the kingdom of God. Now, I wouldn't mind an H being added to my name. I want to be that sort of person. I struggle to get there. I struggle to get there. But I want to face the challenges of life. I want to ask the hard questions. I want to wonder what God might be doing with me and with, and with the people I know and with the family I have that I love. And I want to trust. I want to be the person that God gives this awesome name to because I lived my life according to his spirit. I'm not there yet. My guess is a lot of you aren't there yet either. Some of you are and you got to teach us how to get there with you. And as we've been talking about these take root t-shirts and this take root thing, it's, it's that trusting moment for our church. For those of you who call this place home and this is exciting for you, and even if you don't and this is exciting for you, that's what we're about together. These commitment cards that we have, these booklets, these t-shirts, it's, it's about learning how to trust. This might be the greatest moment of trust for this congregation that God puts before us. And so whatever that looks like for you, I want you to think about that and wrestle with it. Where do you struggle to trust? Where does the wind blow and you topple over because the stress just hasn't built up enough to make you strong? And again, I don't want to be the preacher that says go home and get yourself stressed out, but there's an element of that that's very true.